With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. 630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad. Well, good evening. Thank you very much for tuning in tonight. Monday night of the long weekend. Hope it has been a nice one for you, whatever you chose to do over the weekend. And thanks for spending some time with me here on Inside Sports on 630 Ched, the home of the Edmonton Elks and the Edmonton Oilers. Elks getting going Saturday, Saturday, as uh, they will be home to the Ottawa Red Blacks. And, of course, we have the game for you right here on 630 Ched. Pre-game coverage at 6, and then they'll kick it off at uh, 8 o'clock. Going to be a lot of fun. Of course, we're into the second week of the Olympics in Tokyo. And then I, I also want to let you know the Paralympics are going to be from August 24th to September 5th. And we do have some local stories to tell here. And as we uh, take you through this edition of the best of inside sports, I just want to flash back to July 19th. Erin Young joined me on the show. She is once again going to the Paralympics as a member of the uh, Canadian wheelchair basketball team. And uh, she's been through a lot in her career, in her life, and she tells you about the injury that led to her playing wheelchair basketball. Yeah, so um, I had a couple knee injuries back in my able-bodied days um, through basketball and lacrosse, and they um, tore my ACLs completely, ruined my meniscus, and my left knee, I fractured my femur and my tibia, so... All those kind of mixture of injuries led me to wheelchair basketball, and that's how I got classed in to play wheelchair basketball. Okay, so can you tell us, and I, and I, you, you know what I'm asking, but I'm going to tell the listeners, I'm not talking about three-point field goal, two-point field goal, and foul shots. I'm asking about a different point system. How, how does the, the point system works when it comes to classifying players? Yeah, so the classification process, um, you have to submit all your medical and then you have almost like judges come and watch and judge you to see where your classification, so where your disability lies. And my classification is a 4.5 and the rankings go from a 1.0 to all the way to a 4.5. Um, a 1 is obviously someone usually that has a spinal cord injury pretty high up, so they have not a ton of function um they don't have a lot of ab or core control whereas a four or five pretty much looks normal but they can't do most able-bodied things if they have a lot of core function rotation all sorts of stuff like that okay so and, and there is is there a limit to the amount of points that you can have on the floor at a time yes you're only allowed to play 14 points on court at a time Okay, so when when you're when you're on the court, there might be some players like like you said, perhaps with some spinal injuries and some more limited mobility on the court with you. Yeah. Okay, so is there? Uh, how does that affect sort of? Because because I would assume, and I ho- I'm not trying to be. I hope I'm not sounding like ignorant or anything here, but I, I would assume there would be some players who might have a little, a few more challenges handling the ball. Correct, and may, they may play different roles on the team. 
Yeah, so essentially being a 4.5, I'd be considered like almost like a center if you want to kind of make it basketball terms. And usually mid-class players between probably a 2 and a 3.5, those are your point guards essentially. And then below that is the workhorses of the game. They're the ones that get me inside the paint. They're the ones that work their butt off to help me up and down the court or um, pick and roll situations. Like they're they're the workhorses of the team, I would say. <laughs> Okay. Well, no, that's 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 good context, and uh, I'm not going to say I've seen a lot of wheelchair basketball, but I have seen some, and uh, I, I got to say, Aaron, whenever I watch, I am always because basketball is such a vertical game, and wheelchair basketball changes that entirely. But then you see how you ladies and the men can fire the ball around and throw up three pointers from distance with with ease I, I mean to me it's it's kind of an amazing spectacle to watch do you get a lot of that when people see it for the first time oh yes um i try to make an example of wheelchair basketball is more of a chess game rather than just a basketball game in general because there's a lot of things that go into our play and like the outcome of our play and how we play defense um but yeah Lots of people, you know, expect people that have disabilities to be, I don't know, play nice. And wheelchair basketball is not that the case at all. So they, they're very excited when they see us play and see what we can do. And I think that's a big energy booster when we play and you hear the crowd like, oh, no way, they can do that. Or, oh, they broke their ankles, even though you can't really break someone's ankles in wheelchair <laughs> basketball. So it, it just you just feed into that energy and you want to make that more of a, a show and enjoy, like, let them enjoy the game. Well, I, I have noticed, and again, I, I don't claim to be an expert. I, I've seen some over the years just, to, you know, spending most of my adult life covering sports. But... Yeah, it, it, you're right. Wheelchair basketball, and I also covered wheelchair rugby at one point in my career too. <laughs> they are not gentle games. Like, you guys don't care. Like, if you're going to the hoop, you're going to the hoop. If somebody gets in the way, okay, in standing basketball, there, there's going to be a chest-on-chest collision or shoulder-to-shoulder. -shoulder. In wheelchair basketball, it's like, fine, if, if my chair is there first and I crash into you, too bad. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Okay, uh, what's the worst collision you've ever been involved in on the court? Oh, man, I have broken multiple fingers. I've smacked my head against chair and the ground. Um, but I think the worst is when people fall and they dislocate their shoulders or dislocate elbow. It's very gross to see. It, it rarely happens in the game, but when it does, it's really gross to watch and obviously you feel for the athlete that it happened to but there's been some pretty gnarly falls in my career that I've seen and also I have done <laughs> okay well hopefully there are none of those in, in your future here as Canada gets ready to compete at the Paralympics uh we were texting earlier today you guys got fifth in 2016 tell me about the the cycle this year first of all with Paralympics getting delayed a year and then for for you I suppose going from being kind of a newcomer to a team to to now the veteran how's it been the last four or five years it's been so good, and it's been very different. So the last um, quad, we put it in kind of a four-year term. Um, it was 
obviously a ton of veterans on the team and then after 2016 all of them retired so all of us newbies got to kind of step up and have a leadership role and ever since then like oh it's been magical to play with this team and we have such a new and different dynamic and we're all young like we're just constantly hungry in practice to win whether it's just like a shooting game or an actual scrimmage and then once we're on court against another country like it's pretty we're pretty unstoppable in our like emotions and our physical drive like it's just really fun to play with this group of girls and leading into Tokyo and it being postponed a year uh we really kind of put a twist on that negative aspect where we were like it's just another year for us to get better and I feel like since then we have improved a ton and I'm just really looking forward to the games coming up so Aaron who do you play how do you stay in shape are there a lot of international events? Do you have a club team and play in a league? Tell people how you, you stay sharp here. Um, so I graduated from Alabama uh, before kind of COVID really hit. And uh, I actually signed with a German professional team. So I went over there and played a season from September till April there. So I was the only one on our female team that actually got games and got to like actually play basketball with the team majority of the girls um had to do a lot of isolation training where they're by themselves or just in a small group so i was very fortunate to go play in germany and have that opportunity but as for the summer um we've just been playing with with and against each other and there hasn't been a lot of international tournaments just due to covid and you know all the safety measures that have to be in place for us to play so we've just stayed in canada and we've been playing against quite a bit of our men's team and the u23 men's team as well so we've gotten quite a bit of games um this summer even though they haven't been international and it's been a lot of fun because getting to play against men you just want to kind of prove yourself to them all the time so the games have been pretty aggressive (laughs) okay that's good to hear i want to circle back to something you said i think it's important for people to hear this you signed with a team in germany so i want to clarify you have been paid to play (laughs) women's wheelchair basketball Actually, I signed to play in a pro team that's um, a mix, mix between men and women, and obviously majority of it's men, so I kind of play in a men's team. <laughs> okay, but you did make money doing this. Yeah. <laughs> this, this was a professional. No, why don't I just, I'm not going to ask how much, I'm not going to pry, but I think that's significant for, for people to hear, uh, you know, that uh, maybe don't know a lot about wheelchair basketball, that hey you're you're good enough and that there are teams out there where uh where it can be a profession so so that's uh that's really cool because you, you've worked very hard at this what is it like with the because you mentioned how the point systems work and and you're the highest rated in terms of ability and, and you do not use a wheelchair in your day-to-day life correct yeah that's correct 
So what's it like with sort of the mix of someone like you and maybe you have teammates who, you know, have suffered a spinal injury and, and have gone through likely a massive transition in their life from perhaps being, you know, very mobile to now being not as mobile. How does it sort of work with everybody uh, together on the team like that? And, and are there teammates, you know, that, that come to the team and are still experiencing the difficulty of that transition in life? Yeah, so we have such a good group of girls on this team that um, obviously we don't really see the disability first. We just see the person, and that's my teammate, and I look out for them. So obviously if something does happen to them on court where you're kind of just like, you, as a 4-5, we get a little bit overprotective. So when something does happen and a teammate hits a deck pretty hard, we're like going after that person that did it to them. <laughs> but um, other than that, like, all the girls have we're all through like different life phases and stuff like that so there have been some girls that have come into the program or on the team that are still struggling with their disability but when you're around people that love who they are and you know you just it grows on you and you you start to um become better as a person and better as a teammate so as much as we've all come from different backgrounds and come from different injuries, like the group of girls and how positive and outgoing we are, it's just like all helped us mentally and physically. Well said. Okay, Paralympics, August 24th to September 5th. You kind of gave the schedule earlier of, of heading over there. Of course, we'll be following how you how Canada's doing. You're going for gold after finishing fifth last time. So I'll ask this to, to end it off. How good are you guys? Should we realistically expect a medal? <laughs> um, I think so. Um, I think our women's team has worked extremely hard to better ourselves and I have so much faith and confidence in this team that we will be bringing back a medal. All right. I, I have confidence as well. Aaron, I love having you on the show. You're a great story. You're a dedicated, outstanding athlete. And I also love having you on the show because I know whenever you're on, the ratings in Legal and Mournville just go through the roof. <laughs> I'm glad. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Yes, that's uh, Aaron Young from Legal, Alberta, with, uh, and played some basketball in Mournville along the way as well. Great to have her on the show. We've had her on three or four times over the years. She played uh, college basketball at the University of Alabama, and as she told you there, pro opportunities playing wheelchair basketball for her in Europe. So we'll keep an eye. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com eye on her and the Canadian women at the Paralympics. Again, those are going to go from August 24th to September 5th. James H. Brown and Associates, title sponsor of Inside Sports, Trent Brown, former member of the Edmonton Elks, great safety in his day. He remembers having a love-hate relationship with training camp. Well, that's uh, that's an excellent way to describe it. I think Reed uh, 
love and hate. Uh, look, camp is good, right? Uh, you have to get through camp in two a days, make sure you're healthy. It puts a lot of stress on your legs and your body. So, you know, you sort of make sure that you're fit and you're ready to go for the season. It also sort of establishes a pecking order. And so it serves a purpose. It's well needed. But uh, does a veteran player like to practice twice a day and scrimmage and stuff when you've got a young rookie that's scratching at your eyes and trying to make the team? No. Now, uh, but it's nice to get a few reps in uh, the preseason at uh, this at at uh, the start of each year um but typically the veterans don't play a lot in those preseason games and they're used mostly to evaluate the young talent so if you're a young guy and you're trying to make the team those games are critical right uh because they can make or break uh your career i mean if you have a good preseason game as a rookie you can make the team and if you don't get any reps or if you don't get in or if you don't play well well then you've got a very uh low likelihood of making the team so it serves a purpose at training camp uh no guys don't look forward to training camp but in some ways it's fun i mean you eat good you there's a lot of camaraderie joking around that goes on because you're living with the guys for you know three three or four weeks but uh so love and hate is a great way to describe it yeah i love it but i hate it so when you, and I think 91 was your first year, yeah. was the job available? Did you have to beat out a veteran? Yeah. Like how competitive or, and I know, and look, I, I've done a lot of questions like this, and, and I know people who play at the highest level of a sport are wired to be competitive, and they know, you know, you, before you beat guys on the other team, you, have to, you often have to beat guys on your own team. So what was that process like for you? Was it ever uncomfortable? Did the vets sort of shun you for a while? Like, how did you work your way in? Do you want to know what? Yeah, like when you're a rookie on a team, especially if, if uh, you're, you're good, it's hard to get reps in training camp. Because if you're a smart veteran, you keep the rookies with little reps and it's actually the players union in the cfl that kept the training camps uh short for a long time because it worked in favor of the current players to keep the training camp short um guys that are coming up from the states it takes them a while to learn the new game the cfl game and if the training camps are short and if you can minimize their reps it uh it sort of gives you a little bit of job security so to speak right like it's hard for somebody to come in and take your job uh my situation in the early 90s um there was a guy by the name of dan murphy who was a third pick overall in the cfl draft and he was coming in as as uh, as a highly touted sort of rookie and uh and so yeah it it was an uphill battle there were lots of uh uh, uh, back and forth where I would play a few games and he would play a few games and uh, there were a few articles in the newspaper about the Murphy Brown saga and uh, and I was I guess uh, pretty lucky and fortunate at the end of the day to finally win that battle out but we sort of did a tag team for a number of years there before I guess around the mid 90s I finally sort of established myself as uh, the starting safety so uh so there was a little bit of back and forth and and that's sort of pretty par for the course i uh think now now i was very fortunate to play uh with a great group of guys on uh, the defense but uh um some of those guys were 
wily veterans. And and once I became a veteran, uh, yeah, when there's a guy that's trying to take your job, you make sure that he isn't getting a good rap. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. For sure. Yeah. Trent Brown, you'll be hearing him on the show as we move forward here. Okay, so we had the voting for the Elks All-Time All-Stars. Dave Fennell, the top vote-getter on the D-line. Giz on special teams. Larry Highbaugh, defensive back. Heck, Pothier, O-line. Running back was Normie Kwong. Brian Kelly, who you heard from earlier, was receiver. Warren Moon, top quarterback. And linebacker Dan Kepley led the voting, followed by Willie Pless. And then J.C. Sherritt was next up as we continue with the best of inside sports on 630 Chet. I caught up with JC Sherrod who's now coaching at Cal Poly. They're they're good. I mean it was uh, it was a really exciting opportunity. Um Coach Baldwin took the job here at for the 2020 season and had reached out to me and obviously he's somebody who had a huge, huge impact on my life. Um so get to come down here and work for him. Um it was just it was it was kind of a dream job, and so um, we showed up here, and obviously, like all of us around the world, ran into uh, quite a funky year, but luckily, it's it feels like, knock on wood, we're getting back on track, so we are about to start camp here August 6th, which is very exciting. So how's the transition been to coaching? Like, I know we talked when the Stamps hired you, and unfortunately, you know, like you said, 2020 wasn't, I suppose, necessarily a full season under your belt because of all the changes. But how, how, have you, uh, how have you rode through the transition from playing to coaching? Uh, it's been great, honestly. And um, I know we probably don't want to talk about this on a, uh, on a Edmonton sports show, but Calgary was really, really good for me as well, professional development. Um, just kind of how they run things over there. And then I had people um, there looking out for me, you know, Corey Mace and Huff and Dickey and Monson and guys who were helping me develop as a coach, which is hopefully for the next 30 years, every year I'm just trying to develop as a coach and having people like that. Um, but it's it's been really good. And then obviously to come down here and I'm with, you know, the offensive coordinator and myself, we played together. The offensive line coach offered me my only scholarship at Eastern, and then I, I played for Coach Baldwin. So uh, I'm, I've been fortunate enough to, to be around people who have, you know, have the best interest for me in their heart, and, and they're helping me develop. And that's, that's kind of the name of the game. So let me ask you this. Would have J.C. shared the player liked having – J.C. shared as a coach. You know what I mean? Like, are you... <laughs> God, I would, sure, I would sure there? hope so. <laughs> or, I would sure you... hope so. I don't think I'm doing things right. <laughs> the reason I ask it, I'll, I'll tell you why I'm asking you that. Because, uh, as you know, Scott Milanovic was briefly the coach of the double E, never wound up coaching a game here. And I said, what would have 
you thought of yourself when you were a player? And he kind of said, well, I probably would have thought he was a little immature and needed to calm down, <laughs> calm down a little bit. <laughs> well, I, I, I get it. That's all situational. But when you're 5'9", 210 pounds, you're, you're kind of going to do all the things right or you're, uh, you're out of there. So I think I, uh, I would have been pretty easy to coach, I would imagine. I don't think I would have been talking back too much. <laughs> now, if I was the man, I, you know, I don't know. If I, if I had the size and all that stuff, I, I have no idea how I would have acted. But, yeah, I think, uh, I think I would have been coachable. I hope so. Okay, so did you never feel like you were the man, even as you became a CFL All-Star and a Division All-Star and a, and a mainstay with Edmonton? Like, did you, did you always feel like uh, an underdog fighting for the next snap? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, the one time I felt like I let my guard down was the year after I had won the award. And this has stuck with me forever. Um, I felt like that's the only time I didn't really, I didn't train to a level that was with absolute urgency every day. And I, 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 I feel bad about that to this day. It bugs me to this day. And I, I was playing, I played good, but I didn't feel like I played great. And I always, in the back of my head, I always thought that was, because it's the only time in my life I ever felt like, you're good, dude. You made the team. Here we go. And then I think that's a horrible mindset to have. I certainly will never have it as a coach. Um, and it was the only time I had it as a player. And uh, that stuck with me. So after that, it was, uh, it, was, it was all go for sure, as it should have been always. Yeah. Well, that's, you know what, that's a good lesson. And it shows that you're never you're never too good or too old or too experienced to learn a lesson. Right. So, so that's, that's a, that's a good way to put that forward for sure. JC Sheriff joining us tonight on inside sports. I want to ask you, uh, you, you guys playing the big sky conference. I mean, look, you, you know mm -hmm. what college football is like uh, Alabama and Notre Dame and USC and schools like that get a lot of attention and a lot of TV time. Tell us a little bit about the big sky conference and where you would say it sort of stands in the, in the hierarchy of all those schools and conferences? Yeah, so down here, obviously off population, um, you've got multiple tiers of college football. You can almost think of it um, almost like a European soccer league or basketball, but it's you have Division One, you have Championship Subdivision, which is the big sky, you have Division Two, you have Division Three, and you have NAIA, and you have up to 100 teams in each of those leagues. So... A lot of tiers. Um, we are, for our level, we're in one of the more competitive conferences. Um, if you look around the CFL, Ricky Ray came from this conference, Nichols, Riley, Bo Levi, Dario Romero. It keeps going. Um, so this, the CFL has been really good to this conference. Um, and, you know, that's the tier we're at. We're going to play Fresno State. Um, we'll play a cow, but we're a, we're a tier below them as far as conferences are scheduled. Um, the other thing we have is we have playoffs at the higher level. Now they're starting to get playoffs, but that used to only be bowl games. So at the end of our season, you will see a true national champion. Oh, nice. Okay. Which fans like nobody likes the voting, right? So that's right. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> okay, JC, we've had some fun here over the last week and a half or so. We had voting on our website for the franchise all-stars. And yes, I know there's a couple different names in there, but the franchise is the franchise and mm -hmm. linebackers. Dan Kepley, number one, Willie Pless, number two, as voted by the fans and JC Sherritt. 
voted the third best linebacker in Edmonton football history. When you hear that, what do you think? Uh, it, that means a lot to me. Um, you know, I, I was one of the people I, I really did look at the history of Edmonton and I knew what both those guys ahead of me had done. I knew what Danny Bass, Ruck, you know, we had talked about Singor Mobley. There's been some dudes to come through there uh, and just get to be with those guys. Uh, you know, just getting to be mentioned with them. And I know that sounds like an all shucks moment, but it's true. I, I know what they have done. That's the thing. I know what they accomplished. So um, just to get to flow in with a list with them, uh, that's, that's pretty dang cool. So what was the biggest transition for you coming to the Canadian football rules after playing in the United States, probably ever since I can't, I know we've talked before, but I think you started pretty young. So what was the biggest transition for you? Uh, the tempo of the game. I mean, you don't realize how fast paced the game is from the play clock. Um, in the position I was in my career, you have to play special teams as well as defense. Um, and it is rolling now. We, you know, Anybody who's watched the CFL game, who's in the CFL game, understands that tempo, that pace. Uh, but when you're coming out of, you know, it, when you play down here, you could play in a smash mouth football game that is really slowed down. It's all run. You, you're not playing in that in the CFL. You better be able to roll. You better have some lungs. You better be in condition. Um, and then the, it's the same jump, you know, from high school to college, what that speed looks like. Um, college to the CFL, there's just... There's guys out there, you know, there's Brandon Whitaker or Chad Owens or um, all the receivers in Montreal they had for years that were great. There's just dudes out there that don't look like anybody you played against. And, um, you know, that was the transition and that's what you got to get used to. And you either rise your game to it or you're on a plane ride home. Well, that's that's a good way to put it, for sure. I want to ask you this. Uh, Eddie Steele came on last, because we're kind of revealing a couple positions a day. So we did the D-line yesterday, and Eddie Steele came on and you know talked about uh, El Mondo and some of the skills you need to, to be a good defensive lineman. Mm -hmm. And Eddie, I asked Eddie, so if you had a group of kids and you're teaching some of them to be D-linemen and they're learning football, like what do you look for? And he said, technique is so important as a defensive lineman so if you got a bunch of like raw kids wanting to play football like they're whatever eight nine ten however however old and they want to be linebackers what what do you look for what raw skill do you need or what are some of the first things you need to teach them well i i recruit for a lot of the year so i i'm ready for this question <laughs> um the first thing you look well let's see are we talking about nine and ten or are we talking about a high school kid that's well, a good question. Oh, well, yeah. Let's well, let's let's start a little younger, like the little aspiring okay. guys. <laughs> well, I mean, if you when you start young, you just want to see people who love the game. Do you love football? That's a question we ask as recruiters all the time, because it's a very important question. Because it's it's going to be a grind. There's going to be good times, bad times. Um, if I'm looking at the younger dudes, I want them to go out, run around, have fun with their teammates, understand discipline technique for sure uh but surely just enjoying the game and running around now when scholarships come on the line or when i was in calgary and jobs come on the line now you're looking into a world of how is their twitch capability 
how do they pass drop? How do they pass rush? Where's their contact curves? Do they accelerate through contact? But if I'm eight, nine, and 10, go let it rip, man. <laughs> Just go have fun. That's, that's all I'm telling you. Um, that's, if I'm talking to a 10-year-old right there, I'm saying, okay, this, I'm teaching them discipline, toughness, and having fun with teammates. Right on. Okay, I got one more for you. And, of course, we wish you all the best with, with Cal Poly, another team I got to follow here. Uh, Labor Day, you're probably going to be working, coaching, but are you going to find a way to watch or follow the Labor Day Classic, find a way to PVR and watch it before bed if you're coaching all day? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll find a way. I will. Even if it's watched in uh, December, I'm going to find a way to get that thing recorded. Uh, but, no, I still I check up on both um, both teams. You know, I still check up on my guys around the league that are still rolling, which is so cool to see. They're in year 10, year 11. Uh, you know, Nichols is in Ottawa, and now you got all these teammates in Montreal and Toronto, and then you coach dudes in Calgary. So I love the CFL. I always have. I always will. So I'll be tuned in. Now, will I watch the game as it happens? That might be a tough, tough one, but uh, it, it'll get watched eventually. Right on. Well, J.C., it's great to catch up with you. I hope we stay in touch here, and congratulations on being third for an entire uh, the, the entire history of the uh, franchise in the fan vote for best linebacker, man. Hope you're doing great. All right. I appreciate you having on. We'll talk again soon. That's J.C. Sherritt. Always good to catch up with. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. him great player when he played here always well spoken and now passing his knowledge on to the next generation of players all right former Edmonton Oil King Curtis Lazar checked in and he told you about a kind of crazy season he had he was a Buffalo Sabre before he got traded to Boston and even though it was tough times for the Sabres he liked it there I, I honestly, from the beginning of my time to the end there in Buffalo, I, I enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, you talked that length of losing streak. I think we lost 18 in a row or something, and 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 it was tough. I'm, mean, you know, you're fighting hard. You're out there playing each and every game, uh, trying to rate the ship, I guess you can say. And uh, it's such a great group of guys. Um, you know, they're they're friends. That's. Uh, you know, they mean a lot to you. And when things aren't going well, it's tough. And unfortunately, you know, someone's it's going to fall on someone's shoulders. That happened to be Ralph at the time. And like you said, I mean, he's such, so well-respected, such a good guy. And you know, even when I moved uh, along to Boston, I, I still, you know, kept in touch with him a little bit here and there and, and whatnot. But, uh, I mean, COVID as a whole, that hit us as a team. Uh, it just, uh, everything that could go wrong seemed to go wrong in Buffalo. But uh, they turned around as of late there. And uh, it's good to see Johnny Grunau get the get the job is you know he's a very stand-up guy and he's going to do great with that young core and uh again i i did enjoy my time in buffalo so you know coaches getting fired is unfortunately part of pro sports uh how did you find out uh i mean who, who when when that happens how do the players find out in, in this case okay or else no longer going to be your coach what's the process well uh i mean the hard part for us 
and it was kind of like that taking time off right but he was getting on him and you kind of try to block that external noise but you know it's still there and I, I think we had a day off and as I mean a lot of us players but even nowadays it's just on social media and you post up there you see it on Twitter or Instagram or whatever so that's uh, like boy, it was a tough day I mean you feel like you let uh, your coach down um, and it's a uh, tough on everyone because like you said, I mean you are family you are battling there and, and playing together if we're if you're on the ice or behind the bench but uh he's a great guy I'm, I'm sure he's uh you know doing well back in Switzerland and uh I, again it's uh he taught me a lot so I owe a lot to him yeah, for sure. Curtis Lazar joining us tonight on Inside Sports, uh, talking a little bit about the uh, the tough times with the Buffalo Sabres this year. But, uh, man, the, the news for you extends further than that. Uh, kind of, uh, I guess, early to mid-April was pretty busy in your life. Uh, can you introduce everybody to Owen Lazar, first of all? <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, throughout the, everything going on in uh, in Buffalo, my, my wife and I we traveled uh, Owen into the world on uh, I guess April fourth, um, and everyone knows I guess I think it was April eleventh is the trade deadline, so that was shortly after and how the other ball dropped. But uh, you know what what a whirlwind! Uh, again, my wife and I we plan on having the kid back here in Kelowna, and then with the whole quarantine rules and stuff, she actually flew down to Buffalo, thirty five weeks pregnant. Uh, she was an absolute trooper this season because, uh, you know, we had the kid in Buffalo. Uh, you know, he was born a week later. We get that phone call. We're going off to Boston. So you pack everything up and uh, you make that trip and fill into a new city. So I owe a lot to, uh, to my wife. But, it, I mean, being a dad's great. Uh, it's the best thing in the world. And uh, when it gets older, but how you can walk into this world for sure. And I believe, uh, I believe you got to be there or were you traveling for the birth? I, I was there actually. Uh, I, I was hurt at the time and uh, was able to be there, but uh, I, I wasn't going to miss that for the world. Uh, I had some great di- dialogue with uh, Kevin Adams, and just in the world and the state that I was in, uh, you know, there's some hurdles that you know had to be jumped over and and whatnot. But uh, our safety being the first and foremost. But uh, they backed me and they supported me every step of the way, which uh, it means a lot to me. Okay, so and then and then you touched on it, the the trade deadline. So you have a, a newborn that's about a week old, <laughs> and, then, and then you find out. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I ask you how you found out your coach was fired. Uh, how did you find about, out about the trade to to Boston? Well, yeah, it's it's funny because uh, you know we had Tanner all there in Buffalo, and he was sitting out the past couple games just uh, as precaution, and there was rumors of a move happening. And so again, I was sitting on the coach with Owen on my lap, and. Uh, like like I said before, I mean, I was hurt at the time, just had a newborn. I was like, there's not a chance in the world I'm getting moved. And that just, uh, you know, shows how the world is. And 11 p.m., uh, my phone rang, and it was Kevin Adams and wished me all the best. And I actually, uh, you know, I had no idea that it was, uh, you know, Taylor Hall was a part of the trade or anything like that. He just said, you're going to Boston, you know, get ready to leave at about noon the next day. So my wife and I, we, we packed up uh, everything that night, but... Uh, Again, that phone call kind of caught us off guard, but that's uh, that's the life we live. But uh, we couldn't be happier to be in uh, in Boston with such a great uh, city and organization. Okay, I just want to circle back to that. He didn't tell you you were involved in the biggest trade of the deadline. He just told you you were traded. He didn't tell you what else was involved. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's all I got from Kevin Adams. Just so that I was traded to Boston, that they wanted me to uh, solidify their fourth line and and make a run for it this season. Uh, and it wasn't until Don Schmini called me and told me that my friend and uh, 
you know, teammate Taylor Hall was coming with me. So uh, at that moment, they could kind of reach out to him. And I, I don't even know if he knew that it was, uh, you know, processed or, you know, official or what. But uh, having him there, and it was great, too, going into a new locker room. It's always good having a, a friendly face with you. Okay, so you go to Boston. Look, they've been one of the best franchises over about the last, uh, you know, 12 to 15 years. They, they won a cup, couple more appearances in the final. They're always up there in the regular season. They're, they're usually a threat to go deep in the playoffs. You know, certainly they got, uh, you know, Marchand, who's, who's a great player. I don't always like some of his antics, quite frankly, but, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's a great player. And uh, Bergeron's considered perhaps the best all-around player in the game and several other skilled guys who've been together a while and who have succeeded together. What's it like going into that room and finding your role on that team? It's, uh, it, you know, it, it happened pretty fast, that's for sure. Um, and, and like you said, just to be touched on, I mean, you got uh, Patrice Bergeron, the best two-way center in the game, and that's someone that I, you know, watch a lot of video on and his tendencies and whatnot. Uh, Marshawn, like you said, is he's a little bit crazy on the ice, but one of the nicest guys off. I mean, he's got his teammates back through anything Dickinson he's there for you one of the greatest guys ever and uh but uh, I've been told uh you know Halsey this was when we stepped on that the ice for our first pregame skate I said you know just the mood was different uh you know there's a team that was on a mission uh and, and they were going to be denied and we went on a nice run there right after the deadline and uh we really knew that uh, we had a special group and it was unfortunate that we came up short but uh being a part of the Bruins the rich history like you touched on it's uh it was pretty cool and, and be playing meaningful hockey games again getting to the playoffs I mean, that's what every player wants, and I, I definitely uh, enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to next season. That's Curtis Lazar. Always great to catch up with him, and we wish him all the best as he continues on with the Boston Bruins. 630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad.